You know, there's a story told, a long ago story told, but very true story uh, from the year 1818, of course, of a King Tamato. It's, it's, it's funny because I, this is a true, this is the name. He's a chieftain. He was a king of the Hunan Island in South Sea. But I saw that name and I'm like, his name looks like Tomato. And you guys know my history with tomatoes. I'm not a fan of tomatoes. And so, but, you know, it's hard for me to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It's a very powerful story, true story. Uh, King Pomato from the Hunan Islands in the South Sea, he became a Christian. And here is the interesting thing. They were an animistic society, which they would worship idols, and they would worship uh, what they believed to be gods, that it would inhabit trees and rocks and these sorts of things. And so there was a faction of the people up on this island that were very troubled by the fact that he had now given his life to this new God who he said was the one true God, and his name was Jesus. He had become a Christian. And so there was a plot. They rose up a plot. They plotted against him to overthrow, to overthrow his kingdom and those that followed him and those that had become Christians of his, of his household and his court and the people. And they had actually plotted to, to not only kill him and eradicate him, but burn him and his followers to death. Because they believed that this is what needed to be done to purge their island of what they thought to be this rival God named Jesus, who their king said was the one true God. Well, here's the thing. Uh, king Tomato found out about this plot, and he, in fact, plotted himself against those who had originally plotted against him. His plot came to fruition, and he captured them. They, expecting the worst, those that were staging this coup, if you will, expected the worst, expected that he would do unto them likewise. But what did he do? He set before them, released and set before them a great feast unlike any they had ever seen. And he said, this is the kind of love that my God, the true God, Jesus, he shows. And what happened? Praise be unto God. They burned their idols, this warring faction that staged a coup against him. They burned their idols, and they too became Christians. You see, when we talk about today's message from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 48, when we talk about loving your enemies, loving your enemies, there is far more at stake than just a personal standing, a personal vendetta, a personal grudge, more than even wiping that clean. More than even just setting things right, there is far more at stake. There is the souls, the souls of men and women at stake, even the souls of those who may be set against you. So when we look at this passage today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 48, we see this great calling, this hard, hard saying of Jesus. He says in verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, here's the interesting thing. In some of your scriptures, that first part, you shall love your neighbor, that is in italics in some of your translations, and the other is not. The reason is, is because that first statement we do find in scripture, Leviticus 19.18, and echoed in other places, that you shall love your neighbor. But that second part, we find nowhere in scripture that you shall hate your enemy. You see, what that was, that that was a product of a, of a type of kind of colloquialism that had arisen in the day. You know how even in our days, some people will think that the Bible says God helps those that help themselves, or it doesn't say that, and you find that nowhere in Scripture? Or, or some people will say cleanliness is next to godliness, that's nowhere in Scripture? 
Those statements are not found, but it kind of works its way into kind of common society, and it gets intertwined, and people begin to attribute things to the Bible that are not really there. You know, this was sort of the thing that had happened with some of the teachings, just kind of common teachings of the day. So Jesus was pointing out a true statement that we see from Scripture, you shall love your neighbor, but nowhere do we see in Scripture, you shall hate your enemy. But again, in his in his primary context of those that were following him, he was saying, these are sayings that you hear in, in modern day. These are sayings that you hear rather in their, in their day, in their times in which they gathered, in which they were taught by the rabbis and such. But he says, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. So not just those that, that, that war against you, but those who actually might be more devious than that. They actually use you for their own gain and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is kind of a common principle of Scripture and theology known as common grace. And that even though there, there are plenty of people throughout our world that are not followers of Christ, they're not children of God, still they benefit from the graciousness of God because he is a grace, gracious God that gives us and sustains us, even some of the simple things that we take for granted, the rain that we see. We look at this rain that we had, most of us had, last night. What a breath of fresh air that was after a 105-degree day. But you think about in that context, in those days, they desperately relied upon the rain for their crops and such. And he said, so even God's grace extends to those who do not call him father, who are not his followers. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Remember the tax collectors of those days were those who were despised because they were collecting taxes for Rome. Rome was an imperial government who ruled the entirety of the known world at the time. And they had these vassal states, these puppet governments uh, under them. But really, it was Rome that was completely in charge. And so they had some form of their own government, but Rome really ruled the day. And so not only did they pay taxes to their own Jewish state, but they had to pay taxes to Rome. And so they were resentful of the fact not only did Rome rule over them, but some of these tax collectors, their native people, their native Hebrew people, would serve as tax collectors for Rome. And so they were despised. And he said, are you no better than them? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And as we've seen throughout this sermon series, the hard sayings of Jesus, Jesus isn't just throwing these things out there for shock value, although there are times where he does just that. He throws these things out there, very true callings, very true standards. He doesn't do it just for shock value and say, oh, I'll take it back. Oh, that doesn't matter. I was just kind of saying it. He's saying, as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of me, you are called to a higher standard, a higher standard. So as we look through this passage, as we walk through here and break it down, we're going to see these three things. What did Jesus mean? Very simply, the question that we ask most every week, a little bit different question this week. Why would he call us to such a standard? Why does he call us to such a standard? And then, of course, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? First of all, let's look again at what does Jesus mean. 
He said in verse 43 again, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. We remember again, this wasn't a statement from Scripture, but this was just kind of general teaching. The first part was a statement from Scripture, but the, the rest was just kind of general thought of the day. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to call you to something higher. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So he knew very soon there would be those that are following him. They even faced it a little bit in the time in which he was walking on the earth, but it would be ramped up to the nth degree when he, would, uh, when he was crucified, when he would be buried, rise again, ascend into heaven, that those taking his gospel message into the world, they would face persecution. And they were even facing it in the time in which he was still walking the face of the earth. So he said, you've got to love those who persecute you. You've got to love those who use you. So even if they aren't actively doing something that you could quantify as hatred or, or really being mean and ugly to you, but they're using you, and that's the type of thing that can really hurt deep within, you've got to love those as well. And he said, those who do you harm, who curse you, who, do, who hate you, to spitefully use you, what do you do? You love them. And you bless them. Love means a generous, warm, sort of costly self-sacrifice. That's what it means here as it's used. It's this general, this generous warmth and this costly self-sacrifice. Again, we're going to talk about why. Because we're made in the image of God. And we are his servants. But also, not only does he say love, but he says to bless. That means that we go beyond and we praise them. We bestow favor upon them. So when we look at these things that Jesus calls us to do... It's pretty straightforward. It's just very difficult to apply. You know, we might want to look at what Jesus says here and try to figure out a way that we can kind of worm our way through it or, or kind of make a trap door for this exception. We've got an exception here for this special circumstance that I'm dealing with. You know, no one's dealt with a, a, a type of situation that I'm dealing with when someone has spitefully used me or, or someone has done something very difficult to me and hurt me. I've got a trap door. I've got a special exception. It's pretty straightforward what Jesus is saying in this hard saying. It's just very difficult. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 gives us a little clue into this and gives us a, a, a little more meaning to it. He says, if your enemy, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals upon his head and the Lord will reward you. Now, this is not why we do it. God's not putting it there in Scripture. So it says, hey, guess what? You know the, the best way you can get them back? I know what we want to do is we want to get them back. The best way you can get them back, I know it sounds weird. I know it sounds crazy, but you do kind things to them because then it will just really eat at them. It will just really eat at them. And in, in turn, you can get them back. You know, what that does is that exposes the fact that our heart is not right. Our heart is not aligned with God's heart. But he's saying it's just a byproduct of the fact when in turn what our natural human reaction is to try to get the person back. God says you are called to a higher standard and that sort of thing will take care of itself. It will begin to eat at them. But guess what? As we'll also see, sometimes it eats at them in a positive way. It begins to break down those walls of bitterness in their own life. He says, you must love them, generous, warm, costly, self-sacrifice, bless them, praise and bestow goodness and favor on them. Why? He says, well, guess what? Even unbelievers 
synonymous with the tax collectors in those days. We know that Jesus loved the tax collectors just like everyone else, but he tried to think of a way, he thought of an illustration for them that would be more powerful than any illustration, kind of have a guttural reaction within his audience of who in the world would it be the hardest, the hardest to bless, the hardest to love, and Jesus says those tax collectors, the ones that are taking your money on behalf of Rome. We know that Jesus loved them. One of his own followers was a tax collector. But he uses this as an illustration. He say, even they take care of their own. Even unbelievers, even those that don't follow Jesus Christ, even those that aren't uh, made new and redeemed, they can take care of their own. So what did Jesus mean? We are called to go beyond normal human reaction for the sake of the mission. We are called to go beyond normal human reaction. Why? For the sake of the mission. As we know, and we're going to return to here in a few weeks again, we're going to look at um, our vision for our church. And, and the first thing that we're going to look at is the mission. The basic mission of every church and every believer is exactly the same. It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So no church, no believer is given their own mission. We are all given the same mission. We might just have different ways in which we stated in different churches. But that is... And that is the only mission of any church and any believer is to go and make disciples, make followers of Jesus Christ. And for the sake of the mission, we are called to go beyond normal human reaction. It says anyone can react with hatred in like kind when someone is treated you very difficult in a very difficult way. Anyone can respond with love to those that have loved them. But the follower of Jesus is called to the hard things. We're called with hard sayings of Jesus, and he says that we are called to go beyond to love them. So why would he set such a standard? We see a clue here just kind of in the end of that statement of, of it's for the mission. Why would Jesus set such a standard? Look here. Jesus' followers must exhibit radical love. That's why. If we are going to live with the mission at the forefront, no matter what harm is done to us in life, we must exhibit radical love love. Look at this one more thing here. Never mind the grammatical backbend. Do the unnatural, natural thing. Do the unnatural, natural thing. What does that mean? What does that mean? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. You see, it is unnatural for the human when someone, in, for, when someone has harmed you, when someone has injured you, when someone has you know, really worked behind your back and done something, stabbed you in the back, or maybe they've really done something to just really hurt you. It is, it is unnatural for the person, for the human being, to react in love and kindness. Now, here's the thing. We have now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have now been given a new identity. Yes, the old man hangs around, and that's why it still is a little bit unnatural for the person. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, we are not doing it in our own strength. We are not called to love and to bless those who have hurt us and love and bless those who might consider us enemies or our enemies. We are not doing it of our own accord and of our own power, but Jesus says we have been given a new identity. 
We are unified with him. We are in Christ. So yes, as the old nature hangs around, it will still be kind of an unnatural thing, but yet for the believer in Jesus Christ, it is natural in accordance with our new identity in him. So why would Jesus call us to such a standard? Again, Jesus' followers must exhibit radical love. Why? Why? Why do we need to exhibit radical love? Because we have been shown radical love, right? You know, we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks that the Bible doesn't paint a picture for the believer of someone who, or for the unbeliever, is just someone who's kind of, you know, wandering away from God and, and, uh, and God is just kind of pursuing them. And you're like, oh, no, that's okay. You know, I'm not. The, the Bible paints a picture of the one who is, who is uh, an unbeliever with they are in enmity with God because of their sin. Not because God is unreasonable. Not because God is mean. It's because God is holy. He is holy. And so when we look at Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, the picture of the unbeliever is someone who is at enmity with God. But yet, even in the midst of that circumstance, God, because of his radical love, showed radical love unto us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, knowing there was nothing we could do to pay for the penalty of our sin. There was nothing we could do. We could do uh, no amount of good works, no amount of good things in our lives to possibly tip the scales to the good so that we might be saved, that we might go to heaven when we die, and that we might have forgiveness in this life. He, knows, he knew there was nothing we could do, but yet what did he do? He provided Jesus Christ, his son, sent him to this earth, the God of heaven, God the Son, who knew no limits, was now limited to a little baby in a manger. 33 years later, to die on a wooden cross, an instrument of Roman torture, heaped upon his shoulders. When he died that death was the sum total of the sin of mankind. He who knew no sin became sin on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's radical love. We've been shown radical love by God. So why, why would we be able to do anything less? So why would he call us to such a standard? Or why uh, do we need to exhibit radical love? Because we also now have a family pedigree. For the believer in Jesus Christ, this is our new identity. That you may be sons, verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So even to the evil and good, our Father bestows grace upon them. And he says, guess what? Now that you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God. That is now our family pedigree. So why do we need to exhibit radical love? Because we've been shown radical love. Because we have the family pedigree. And why else? Because as his children, we must react fundamentally different than the rest of the world. We have been made fundamentally different because of the rest of the world. That's why Jesus can tell us in verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now God knows that daily, practically in our daily lives, even as believers, we are not going to be practically daily perfect. But what it does is, first of all, it reveals the fact that what could God call us to anything else? What could a perfect God, what standard could a perfect God call us to other than perfection? So it is a goal that we set. 
It also means in the nuance of, of the text and the word, it means complete. We are complete in him, which leads us to exactly what we saw just a moment ago that I quoted from 2 Corinthians 5.21, that when we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, what we exchange is he took his sin, our sin upon himself, and what did we get in return? We received the righteousness of God. What does righteous mean? It means perfection, perfect, pure, blameless, sinless. So when God looks at us, those of us who have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though practically throughout our lives, we are not going to live with sinless perfection each and every day. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ because we are in Christ. We have been born again to the sacrifice of Christ. And we too are righteous. We too are righteous. So what does that mean? It means that we can live this way. We can do the difficult thing because, yes, we too have been made new in Jesus Christ. Why? Why, again, are we called the radical love? Because it is the only way to win the world. It's the only way to win the world. You know, our world is, 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 is lost in its hopelessness. But yet there is always something new that seems to be the Pied Piper of thought or the Pied Piper of philosophy that people think in their lives, whether it be some grand worldwide philosophy or whether it just be something of their own making in their own mind and heart that they think is going to be the answer to the hopelessness in their lives. But guess what? The only thing that's going to make the world stand up and take notice is the very thing that Jesus did. He loved the world with a radical, radical love. It's the only thing that will win the world. And again, why do we exhibit? Why are we called to exhibit that radical love? Because a soul is more important than your pride. A soul is more important than your pride. This one gets really tough. And this is almost where we naturally transition into this last question here in just a few moments. But this is where it gets really tough. A soul is more important than your pride. Do you realize the person that has hurt you, the person who has spitefully used you, as Jesus said, the person that has caused you great trouble and pain, one that you could probably call your enemy, that is still a person that needs the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is still a person without the, their Savior Jesus Christ, without being born again, their destination, their eternity is spent separated from God in a place called hell. A soul is not worth your pride. So as we see, not only what did Jesus mean, why would he call us to such a standard? And then when it really gets tough and personal, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? I want you to do something real quick for me. It may seem a little silly, but I want you to do it. I want you guys to close your eyes, and I want you to think about, I want you to think about and picture that person's face, that person that you think has hurt you the most. We all have someone in life that has hurt us the most and really done us a great disservice, really has done great damage in some cases in our life. I want you to think about that person who has hurt you the most. I want us to read these verses again. As you have your eyes closed, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. And he makes the sun rise and the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, this is when it gets difficult. You can open your eyes. When we think about putting a face or putting a name to a passage like this, it becomes really difficult. But this is the sort of radical love that we're called uh, to share, the sort of radical love that we're called to exhibit as believers in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? The world will not be one. The person will not be one by decent behavior. The world is not going to be won by a Christian just being a little bit better behaved than the world at large. The world won't stand up and take notice of that. But the world will stand up and take notice of radical love and radical holiness. That's the sort of thing that the world will take notice of. And doing it all with the joy, that deep-seated joy that is not shaken by the winds and waves of life. So what does this mean for me? Do you have a growing root of bitterness in your life? Do you just kind of have this bitterness that's boiling under the surface? Ephesians 4.31 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. You see, when a, when a soup, when a stew, when water is boiling over, it will eventually harm the person that's cooking the meal. You see, if we let that bitterness continue to boil in our lives, it's going to boil over, and the person that's going to hurt the most is us. You see, this verse is not going to be on Scripture, but I want to um, read this to you. This is talking about the tongue in James chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. It says, with it, that is the tongue, we, bl- we, we bless our God and Father. And with it, we curse men who have made in the same similitude as God, meaning they share the image of God. We are image bearers of God. So even that person that you might call your enemy that has hurt you the most, they are still image bearers of God, and they have infinite worth and value. We see that dating back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Out of the same mouth, our mouth, proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. You see, do we have bitterness boiling under the surface? We must ask the Lord, help me put that to death. Help me. Help me to forgive that person. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? The end of verses, uh, Ephesians uh, 4.31, the following verse 32. Let me read 31 and 32 to you. Say this, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you with all malice. But what does it tell us to do? He says, not only put it this away, but also take this on, do this. So it's not enough to just try to dig a root of bitterness out of your life. It's not enough to just dig it out because something will fill it. Those of you who weed a garden, you know, if you don't fill it with something good, if you don't put mulch on top of the dirt, another weed will spring up. So not only do you put it away, but he says this, but do something with it. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? What about this? Of whom do you need to ask forgiveness? Is, could it be a situation in which someone has hurt you that you've also hurt them likewise? Sometimes these situations are completely one-sided, but oftentimes they're not. 
Oftentimes they're not. And even if there was a way to somehow quantify who has hurt who more, maybe the other person has hurt you more than you've hurt them, even if there was a way to quantify that, is it not the right and responsibility of the follower of Jesus Christ for you to make the first move? Of whom do you need to ask forgiveness? And then what about this? What practical thing can you do? What practical thing can you do to love the other person that's hurt you? That's tough. That's tough. When you pray, not only that the Lord would help you to root out this root of bitterness, and not only the Lord would help you to forgive, but to pray that he would give you something, he would give you something that you could do to practically love the other person, that is tough. But how do we not know that this might be the breaking point for that person? This might be the breaking point for that person who is dealing with a great deal of bitterness and hurt and pain in their own life. And this might be the breaking point for them. You see, our world is full of people that are just trying to scratch and claw just to make their life just a little bit better. They're scratching and clawing, doing all they can to try to find some answers that can make their life just a little bit better. And could it not be that you reacting with love when the rest of the world says spitefully, when they spitefully use you, that you return it in kind, you react in love, how do you know that might not be the most powerful breakthrough in their life? That might be just the thing that begins to break the ice of their heart. You say to me, Pastor, what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work and I look pathetic? Right? Whether we say it in exactly those words or maybe it kind of comes to mind in a different way, isn't that sort of a thought that we have? What if it doesn't work and I just look pathetic? Now I just look weaker. Is that not the fear of man talking? Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This biblical concept of the fear of man is really akin to what we remember dating back even to our adolescent years. We would say peer pressure, right? You're so afraid of what other people might think or say about you that it affects your behavior. That's exactly what the biblical concept of the fear of man is. And so when we even apply it to this context, we... We can be so afraid, what if I lose, what if I kind of lose in this sort of back and forth thing, this sort of, which we know if we're honest, this sort of ungodly back and forth thing of, okay, they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them back, they hurt me, I hurt them back. What if I actually do the right thing, God's thing, and it doesn't immediately work out the way I think it's going to? Now I've lost standing. Now I'm behind them in the race. Well, I look pathetic. That's the fear of man talking. Do you not trust God with with the standing of your own life? Do we not trust God? Isn't that exactly what trust and faith is? Trust and faith. Faith isn't some sort of generic concept. Faith isn't like the force in Star Wars. Faith is very practical practice of a believer in Jesus Christ. It means that we do what the Bible says because we know it's God's word. We do what God says, what his word says, even when it's difficult. And we trust that his ways are always right. That's exactly what faith is. So what if you do lose that respect from that person? What if you lose respect with maybe colleagues or something at work because you've tried to do the right thing, God's thing, and you don't feel like you're getting immediate results? What if you've lost respect with that person? You feel like you look pathetic in the eyes of that person, but someone else is seeing what you're doing, and you gain great respect from someone else, maybe someone even more influential. It's not why you do it, but may that not be the case. Trust God with the standing in your life. And then here's a question, too. How do you know it hasn't worked? 
How do you know it hasn't worked? How do you know that your action isn't what begins to thaw the heart of that person, thaw the ice-cold heart of that other person? How do you know? Sometimes your fruit blooms on someone else's tree. Sometimes the work that you did, the breakthrough that you've had in their life, that, that harvest may be reaped by someone else as you sow the seeds of love in the character of Jesus Christ. Someone else might reap the rewards of seeing that person come to faith in Christ. So again, finally, what does this mean for me? Just very simply, as we looked at very earlier, practically, how can you love them? How can you be generous, warm? How can you do something of costly self-sacrifice? How can you bless them? How can you praise and bestow goodness and favor upon them? And then, of course, pray for them. Pray for their well-being. You see, we're called to go beyond. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to go beyond the normal human reaction. We're called to do it for the sake of the mission. Why is that? Because Jesus' followers, followers of Jesus Christ, we must exhibit radical love. And that is the only way, the only way that we will win the world. Let's pray. Lord God, there may be no saying harder in the midst of this study, in the midst of what we were called to by Jesus Christ, than this saying right here. When we think about what others have done in our lives, when we think about how we've been hurt, when we think about how we've been mistreated at times, it is maybe the most guttural human reaction to want to respond in kind. And because of that, it makes it so difficult to love our enemies the way that Jesus called us to. Lord, we know that in those times, that other person looks like nothing else. They look like nothing but a target. But Lord, help us to see them as what they are. That they are humans. They are people created in your image. And therefore, they are the objects of your love. And Lord, may we do the radical thing, which is in the midst of a world that says, return it in kind. In the midst of a world that says, do right back to them what they did to you. Lord, may we respond in trust and faith. And Lord, we know our faith and our trust in you is going to be tried significantly. But Lord, may we trust that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And your ways will turn out the best in the end. Lord God, it will be really hard to trust you if we don't see immediate results. It'll be really hard to trust you if we do something kind and loving to a person who has spitefully used us and they smirk or they look at us like we're strange and we're weird. But Lord, give us the faith that we need. Give us the help that we need to trust you to say, I might not see immediate results. The world tells me to do something different, but I'm going to trust that you are the God of the universe and you are always right. Lord, may we have that faith, that trust in you. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.